0: You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah together as an extended metaphor of life after COVID. Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding. The people of God had had their homeland destroyed 140 years prior to the time of Jerusalem and Jerusalem had been destroyed until Nehemiah gathers people and to begin rebuild it. We're now in the second half of Nehemiah, where the walls of Jerusalem had finally been rebuilt. And now the people are beginning to be rebuilt, and their worship is beginning to be rebuilt. And we now come to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we are going to start reading with the first five verses of Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 5. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chenani, And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherabiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No one likes to confess their failures. No one likes to confess their guilt. To admit to wrongdoing when they're caught out, it's not a favorite thing of anybody's. But you know that when a relationship is broken, the only way really forward is at least for one or both parties to admit failure, to confess their wrongdoing. It's the only way forward. How much more so when it's with God? The people of Jerusalem here are trying to restore a relationship with God. And they had known that they had been carried off into exile, into Babylon, and finally getting to return. But mostly, God said it was their fault. They had sinned against him. And they now are finally at this stage where they've rebuilt things. And they're trying to take their relationship with God seriously again. And the worship with God seriously again. And they now begin to admit, yeah, it was on us. It's our fault. I want to look at confession this morning and how it begins to restore relationship by looking at how confession is communal, historic, and humble. Confession that restores the people of God's relationship with God is communal, historic, and humble. So, first, let's look at how confession is communal. Going back to last week, we had a guest preacher, uh, Mr. Andrew Kiesling, from our mother church, Cedar Springs, and he preached on Nehemiah 8. And in Nehemiah 8, the people of God finally read the book of the law again, which we now come to know as the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And upon reading this document that they hadn't read in 140 years prior to that moment, they read it and went, oh my gosh, we don't do any of this stuff. And they wanted to confess their sin. They wanted to repent and begin their process of confession right then. But Nehemiah says, no, no, not yet. In 8 verse 13, he says, not yet. No, no, we got to start with feasting first. Because the season of the time and the calendar it is, is the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament calendar. And we need to understand that delight in the Lord and what he wants for us is where we need to start. Before we actually confess. So feasting before fasting. But no matter what they do, they're supposed to do it together. We expect the fasting to come before the feasting, but it doesn't really matter. The fact is they do it all together. They're all in this communally. And so by verse one of this chapter, they begin finally the confession. We see that there's fasting and there's sackcloth and they put earth on their heads. That's ashes. To admit that we have fallen far short of the Lord's expectations for us and how he wants us to live, how he wants us to worship, and we're finally admitting it before God himself. They're confessing communally. In verse 2, they confess their own sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And in verse 3, they read from Deuteronomy again, the book of the law again, as if one time wasn't enough. And verse 3 tells us they do it for a quarter of the day. That was three hours. And then they confess for a quarter of the day. That was three hours. Anybody excited to stay here for three hours and confess their sin? It was really exciting stuff, right? But that's what they do. Now, if you hadn't read Nehemiah 1 before you get to Nehemiah 9, what you wouldn't know is that by the time you get to Nehemiah 9... They're really just expanding on what Nehemiah did himself. At the very beginning, at the very beginning of the book, Nehemiah knows that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt, and he knows that his people need to confess their sin, but he owns it first. Way back when we preached Nehemiah 1, I said, to really rebuild it requires a leader who's going to own it, a leader who says, yes, it is on me and is on my people, and I will take responsibility. And he confesses his sin. He does the same thing Israel does here. He laments and he mourns and he confesses his sin and the sins of his fathers, it says in Nehemiah 1. And now what Nehemiah did all by himself in chapter 1, all of the people are doing together. They're all doing it communally. Now let's be honest for just a moment. Can you think of a single contemporary American example where people confess their shortcomings communally? It's not a common occurrence. I can think of one barely kind of example. It it comes from the writer Leah Labresco. She's a Christian writer, and she was in the debate club at Yale. And the debate club at Yale had a tradition to admit when you were beaten. You debate in teams, and when facts and reason and emotions would be flying all around the room, and your team knew that you were beaten, you had to admit it in the middle of the debate. They called it being dead on the floor, being dead on the floor, and they would just admit it. They admitted that they were beaten. Now, they didn't necessarily need to confess their sin, but I was hard-pressed to think of an example in any contemporary American setting where people confessed their shortcomings communally. It's just not something we do. As Americans, you'd almost have to enforce it to make us do it today because there's so many cultural barriers to doing communal confession. I'm friends with a lot of folks who don't have a church home, whether they believe in God or they don't at all. And one of the common refrains, one of the common themes I have in our conversation when we talk about things like this is that, oh, you know what, people are basically good. Yeah, people do wrong things. Yeah, I have regrets in my past. But, you know, we don't really need to confess. We don't need to grovel. One barrier to communal confession is to admit the need for confession at all. That I'm more selfish than I really thought I was. That I was more prideful than I really thought I was. Another barrier, even for the Christians that I know, is the need to do it communally. If one barrier is the fact that confession is an admission of guilt in the first place, the second barrier is, wait a minute, together with everyone I commit sins all by myself. Why do I need to confess in a group? But friends, consider that Americans, 21st century Americans, have faults just like every culture that's gone before us, just like every place and every time, whenever you get a group of people together, they will share certain faults in kind. And in the Dave Strunk opinion world, when I look at Americans, we seem to all kind of be guilty at some level of greed and pride certainly there's a lot of anger going around. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, basically, if you find yourself annoyed at something that's wrong in someone else, there's a pretty good chance that you have that same shortcoming yourself. That's why you're so annoyed. And so when I look around and I look at what I'm annoyed at in Americans, it's greed, it's pride, it's anger, and then I go, oh, hmm. We need to confess communally. Communal confession. What are we guilty of? And this is why communal practices of confession are so important to what we do here at Church of the Redeemer. We confess our sin every week with a confessional prayer. We say the same words together. However trite or rote that might feel, we need to develop the the rhythms, the habits of man. We have all fallen short of God. Nobody was perfect in the last seven days, none of us. Whether it was in thought, word, or deed. And we still make space for individual and silent reflection. There's no other place in your culture where in our culture where you can go and (laughs) practice communal confession. We need that humiliation together. We need that unity together. Because it reminds us that we're really not above anyone. And it's up to us to admit it. And to begin to admit that we need that restored relationship with God that he does all the work on. We also practice church seasons like Lent and Advent. These are traditionally penitential seasons. Lent, usually in early spring, late winter. And Advent, which is in December, leading up to the time of Christmas. These are historically penitential seasons where we admit our frailties, our shortcomings, our sin. Kind of like Nehemiah saying in chapter 8, no, 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 we're feasting now. We're all going to all feast first. And then we're going to fast. There's something about the church calendar that kind of trains our communal practices and the whole range of human emotion and the whole range of human need and prayer before God. Lent and Advent just happen to be those confessional seasons. A relationship with God can never truly be sustained over a lifetime as an individual. Yes, it is important to have an individual relationship with God, but it can't be sustained that way. There's not a lot of good lone rangers in the Christian faith, and that sustenance for the walk happens a lot through communal confession. It's an act of humiliation and unity, and it does us a lot of good. So that's first. Confession is communal. Now let's also see how confession is historic. Confession is communal, we do it together here in Nehemiah 9, and now let's see how confession is historic. And I want to admit before I move on, this, this is probably the most controversial point. Confession is historic. We stopped our reading at verse 5 today, but if you had read on, and I hope you have your Bibles open still, or your tablets or whatever, your phone, and you, if you read on through verses 6 through 31, which I'm going to summarize for you, what you would see is a summary of the Old Testament. A summary of the people of God and their relationship to God over that whole time. So verses 6 through 8 talk about the remembrances of Genesis in times past. The key is this whole thing is framed in the form of a prayer. The people pray together and they just start praying their history. So they start with Genesis and Abraham in verses 6 through 8. And in verses 9 through 15, they pray through the Exodus salvation narrative and all that God did, conquering Egypt, leading in the desert by fire at night and pillar of cloud during the day, and manna in the wilderness. And in verses 16 through 21, this is the first clue that things begin to go wrong in the confession. You can read all of this back in Exodus and Numbers, but the people of God are going way backwards in time to say, our people are sinful. We are sinful. We are confessing the sins of our fathers. At this point in time, that moment had happened over a thousand years prior to the time of Nehemiah. Think about that for a second. They're confessing sins that had happened over a thousand years ago. And it doesn't stop there. Moving on in verses 22 through 25, they recount Israel's history in the wilderness and the promised land conquests. In verses 26 through 29, they recount the period of Judges, which was Israel. Every generation, they called out and trusted God, and then they rebelled against Him. They called out and trusted God, then they rebelled against Him. They rebelled over and over and over again. And then in verses 30 and 31, the Israelites here skip over lots of period of Israel's monarchical history and then move to the more recent past, which for them would have been 150 to 200 years prior. And they say, we and our fathers did not listen to the prophets. We did not heed the word of God, and we confess that too. You have multiple hundreds and thousands of years of history that they're condensing down into about 25, 26 verses here, and they're confessing their sin of their ancestors. They're confessing the sin of their ancestors. Now, two, th- two key themes emerge here. And the first is that somehow they view themselves as complicit. That God had made a covenant with people way back in the time of Deuteronomy and Moses and all of his people. And they somehow view themselves as the religious heirs, the forebears of what had gone before. And they view themselves as complicit in prior sin. It's what G.K. Chesterton, the Christian writer of about 100 years ago, he called the democracy of the dead. We we get the good things from the past, and we get the bad things from the past. The, The past is going to speak. It's just whether we admit it or not. Now, the other theme of what they pray through, which I know I glossed over rather quickly, is that God was faithful to the people of Israel even still. God forgave them. God allowed them to return. Verse 17 says, God was slow to anger and gracious and merciful Verses 20 and 30 talk about how the Holy Spirit still led them, even though Israel was rebellious often. And verse 21, God miraculously sustains Israel through the desert with manna, even though they often rebelled against him in the desert. God was faithful. Even despite the people of God over thousands of years running away from him. Now, let's look at an example of this in more recent times that may make us uncomfortable. And I'll admit, it's not an exact historic parallel at all. But if we were to do something like what the people of God in Nehemiah's time do, what would it look like for us? Certainly one of the more glaring instances of sin in American history is the sin of slavery. And in 1969, a man named James Foreman wrote a black manifesto to white churches, noting that many of those churches he was writing to had a historic complicity in slavery. Either the churches themselves were okay with slavery, or the pastor of a church owned slaves, or a church building was actually built by slaves. And James Foreman said, it's up to those white churches that were complicit to pay $500 million in restitution fees to black churches. Now, the United Presbyterian Church... Now, don't think you know where I'm going before the story's over. Just listen to the whole thing now, okay? Now, the United Presbyterian Church... Was It's a denomination that no longer exists and is somewhat, somewhat the forebear of our church's current denomination, which is called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now, they didn't have historic complicity in slavery. In fact, they were the northern branch of Presbyterians and split off before the Civil War from southern Presbyterians because the UPC, the United Presbyterian Church, thought slavery was wrong, whereas southern Presbyterians didn't necessarily. Okay, I know there's a lot of exceptions in between, but By and large, that's how the UPC got created. They didn't have historic complicity in slavery. And yeah, upon receiving this black manifesto about 50 years ago, they said, sure, we're going to play our part. And they paid $100,000 in restitution fees. Now, let's all just admit the messiness of all this because I doubt this story satisfies anyone. For some, it may dissatisfy you because it was such a small amount of what was asked for, $100,000 compared to $500 million that was asked for. It may dissatisfy others because the UPC wasn't complicit in these historic sins. It might dissatisfy others because history is history, and there's no way to confess the sins of ancestors' past. It might dissatisfy still others who believe in the practice of historic confession, but believe the application here was a little off because... Restitution and confession are related, but slightly different, let's admit it. It may still dissatisfy others because the historic parallel is inexact. Israel was a civil body at this time, and it was a religious body. They had made a religious covenant with God. Whereas in America, we don't really have that exact parallel. We have an economic system that for almost 300 years relied on slavery, and that's a civil thing, but we never really had a religious covenant with God. Now, all those dissatisfactions aside, and I share one, maybe two of them, I want you to see how messy this is in our own time. I want you to see how much Americans have drunk of individualism, hyper-individualism, such that we couldn't ever imagine doing something like we see in Nehemiah's time, confessing the sins of our ancestors. But from a biblical practice standpoint, this is something we should consider. Now, I told that story about the UPC, not to tell you what's the right answer, but to have us wrestle with it a little bit. What would it look like for us to do this? And I want to just give you kind of one simple takeaway, which is that in order to confess the sins of the past, we should know the past. We should just quite simply know the past, especially because of this being about the people of God, we should especially know the past of the church. My wife is... Uh, writing and was tasked with writing the 225-year history of our mother church, Cedar Springs. It's 225 years old this year. And there's lots of documents that have compiled history up to about 30 years ago. And they said, would you come on board and review these documents and kind of improve it and put it in book form? It's only ever been kind of bound in a spiral notebook. Put it in book form and do the history for us, and especially write the last few chapters for us. And when she was tasked with doing this, Uh, The senior pastor, the new senior pastor of Cedar Springs, James, came to her and said, Hey, look, as you're reviewing the history, would you do me a favor? Would you see if there's any sins we need to publicly confess about? I've never heard a pastor say that, but that's exactly what we're talking about. Do we know the history of especially our religious forebears? Friends, do we even know our personal history? How many of us know the names of our great-grandparents or our great-great-grandparents? You might know a few, especially if you're into answerstu.com or a few things like that, but most of us don't. And if we don't know our family's history, how could we know our church's history, our city's history, our country's history? The only and the simple point I'm making is we should know our history. To actually do historic confession, we have to do a very un-American thing, and pretend like we have fidelity to the past. And the past has fidelity to us now. But we as Americans of any stripe, any political stripe, conservative, liberal, moderate, generally we tend to be more sensationalized by whatever nonsense is on cable news. Or we tend to just be obsessed with the moment, whatever the latest social media app is, TikTok or whatever it might be. We're so beholden to the moment, we don't reckon with the past. My simple takeaway is that we reckon with the past, we got to know it. Now, hopefully, since no person is perfect and no historic era is perfect, this will lead to humility. This will lead to humility. And that's our last point this morning. Confession is humble. Beginning with verse 32 through the end of the chapter, the Jews move from confession to petition. They basically say, we know we have messed up. We know our ancestors have bit the dust So God be gracious to us. We don't deserve it, but would you be gracious to us? In verse 32, they begin and they say, let not all our hardship seem little to you. Because of their generational sin, they now have no king. They aren't really in control of their land at all. They're subject to a foreign power and they know it and they know it's their fault. In verse 33, they say, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Uh, It's our fault, we know it. In verses 34 and 35, they even admit that their highest and mightiest, the most prestigious of their heritage, kings and priests and nobles, even they didn't listen to God at all. They didn't keep your law or pay attention to your commandments or warnings. In verse 36, they say twice, we're slaves now. What they mean is that we're not really in control anymore. We don't have a a king God promised way back in Chronicles and the book of 2 Samuel for a king to sit on King David's throne forever, and they don't have a king. And they're saying, we don't deserve this, God. We don't deserve it. But would you restore us? This is a humble request. All of these requests assume humility. In fact, this is the baseline assumption of the whole sermon, right? To actually confess your sin, to admit your guilt, you have to be humble, You have to know that you've done wrong and you have to admit it out loud, whether to God or to someone else. In English, of course, the the root of humility, being humble, is the same as humiliation. And that is kind of the mental frame I want for you. A lot of times in in our day and time, in 21st century America, when someone says they feel humbled, it's actually after an honor or an award or a large yes has been bestowed. Somebody gets an award, oh, I feel so humbled. No, 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 that's not right. No, no, no. You, You feel proud. And that you're, you don't really deserve it. That's an okay feeling. But to feel humbled is to feel humiliated. To feel like, oof, I don't deserve this. And I definitely do not look good in front of other people. And what will not shock anybody who knows me, I am strongly opinionated and have struggled with humility most of my life. It's not, it's not a strength for me. Uh, I can tell you what I think I'm good at. Uh, you know, you could ask me, "Hey, you good at that? Oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you. I had a boss and a mentor, uh, Brad, who used to get exasperated with me. He was the senior pastor of a church where I was the associate pastor, and knowing that I needed consistent knocks against my pride and my need to admit when I was wrong, he would challenge me openly in front of others if I was open and defiant in front of him. In a staff meeting, I, I would always, in a brainstorming session, I'd give the first opinion, and I would give the loudest opinion. I would interrupt a lot. Over people who, of course, they were wrong. I would make my opinions the most fervent and the most loud. Now, if you don't experience me that way right now, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and my mentor, Brad Strait, God bless him. I'm gonna get to see him this week, which I'm excited about. But if he would come to me, he would come to me and he would say, Hey, look, is it possible you're wrong? Well, no, it's not possible I'm wrong about this. No, no. And then he had the savvy to come back at me and say, Hey, look, Maybe you're not wrong about this. Is it possible that you're ever wrong? And I'd have to admit, at least like on an intellectual plane, yeah, of course, you know, I'm human, I could be wrong. But he would do that over and over and over again, consistently. And eventually I had to admit more and more and more as things would play out or I had an opinion that I wasn't always right. And the more I did it, I would have to confess my sin publicly, especially to other people in meetings where I had blown a gasket. And I would just have to admit, yeah, I'm sorry I was wrong about that. And the more I did it, the easier it got. But it's humiliating. Confession is humble in the same way that it is humiliating. When someone is challenging you openly because you need to be. Humbling in the right way. Friends, the only way we can restore a relationship that is broken is to admit on some level that we have done wrong. And that is humiliating. To restore a relationship with God requires on some level what Christians call repentance. And even if it's just you in a room by yourself with God, it still can be humiliating in a good way. To even have the courage to look at the past and confess sins that you didn't necessarily commit. It was your ancestors. That requires a little bit of humiliation, doesn't it? How do we walk into such humiliation? Willingly and more over time. There's a hint in our text. In verse 36, they say twice, we're slaves, we're slaves. And what's implied here is we won't be slaves anymore when the Davidic monarchy is restored, when the king who's supposed to be king over Israel is king over us and we are no longer subjected to enemy powers. And that king comes on the scene in the first century. And he's always talking about himself as king and he's always talking about a kingdom and the values of what it's like To be in that kingdom. And instead of Jesus subjugating his enemies and having dominance over them, he answers the prayer of the people to be freed from slavery in a way we don't expect. The king himself is humiliated on a cross. If you see that Jesus was humiliated for your sin, for your rebellion, for your hard-heartedness, for your inability to admit when you're wrong you will have more power to admit your, humiliating, your humiliation for yourself. If you have a hard time confessing, admitting your guilt, if you have a hard time apologizing to a loved one, chances are you probably haven't internalized Jesus' humiliation for you as much as you think you have. And when you have been humiliated, Because of Christ's humiliation, you can know his forgiveness. His forgiveness is real. We don't stay and wallow and grovel forever. We can walk into freedom because when we confess the the sins of ancestors past, we know we have a covenant with God that his cross stands as a perpetual reminder you have been forgiven, and now you have the power to admit that you're wrong even more than you used to. You'll have a humility greater than you used to because you can know the forgiveness of the king who is humiliated for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a sinful people. We don't even know how much our thoughts even lead us astray into being selfish or to not loving you with our whole heart or whatever it might be in a given day. And we pray you'd expose those corners of our minds and hearts that we might be a people who are unafraid to confess, unafraid to apologize to loved ones, and unafraid to do it together. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.